she stole quietly from the recesses of the abbey as the clock chimed to ring in the witching hour. The clanging of the bell masking the scurry of her steps and the rustle of her vestment gown against the stone fortress that now housed the holy order of St. Dwynwen, where she'd taken the veil only two months prior. It was a punishment from her father for rejecting the marriage proposal of a wealthy nobleman whose influence could have raised her family status back to a time before the marriage indiscretion committed by her great-grandfather. The Marquis de Rouveau was kind but homely and engorged himself in Clara's presence with foods that reeked of onion and garlic. Until then, she'd been the apple of her father's eye, obedient, full of light step and utmost propriety. Despite his faults, Clara may even have accepted the Marquis's proposal if not for William. They passed one another at twilight on a summer evening as Clara made her way to the church to light a candle for the spirit of her precious departed mother, whom had passed on during her infancy, trying to birth Clara's brother. Both mother and child perished in the process. On that fateful night, Clara passed the stranger in quiet reverence, and his mouth broke into a wide, beautiful smile. He took his hat from his head and bowed deeply, peering up with austere, ocean eyes. They met unconsciously on the same road every Sunday for three months. At least, Clara told herself it was unconscious. William was the son of a diplomat and in town at request of the king. He soon professed his love for Clara and they were to be married one night in secret because his father would never approve the match. They became one before God on the night before the Marquise made his own proposal. At her rejection, her father had been incensed. He'd banished her to her chamber for weeks only allowing her minimal food and drink to try and coerce her into changing her mind. He was only bent on the upward mobility of his own family name, irregardless of what Clara wanted. In great sympathy to her mistress, Clara's maid carried letters to William, who wrote in return that he prepared to rescue her from her prison through intermission by his father. Clara's maid prepared her flight, sewing hidden pockets into her personal garments to hide the jewels inherited from her mother's family. In anticipation, though, Clara's father had her moved by night to a faraway convent, where she'd been sick with heartbreak ever since. But hark, only two nights prior, someone snuck a letter into her room, the perpetrator a mystery. The letter was from William, instructing her to make an escape and meet him in the forest. Now, old man Winter nipped her bare feet as she leapt from the confines of the abbey and down to the part of the wall that gave way to the forest beyond. Clara imagined always that she beheld feet closing in on her, and the more she looked behind her, the more her fear was fueled as the trees closed her into the dark sepulchre of the wood. Her steps grew timid, her skin pricking as she realized she couldn't read the forest in the night. She heard rustling and called out for William, hoping he was around. The arena of the wood then became silent, and Clara held her breath in horror as she realized she wouldn't even make it back to the convent. Onward she trudged, until her bare feet were muddied and her body frozen from the night's cruel indifference to her suffering. William discovered the frozen corpse of his beloved hours later, himself being detained by a band of suspicious night watchmen, but Clara no longer inhabited the corpse that William held in his arms. She was still walking, on her way to find her beloved in the forest, and there she will tread for all eternity. Ghastly Ghouls, I'm Ashley, and this is Goth Gal, 
podcast where I discuss popular and obscure gothic texts alongside critical theory to stay abreast of my research for my thesis. Today's story included some common tropes you'll be familiar with if you've read The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. A helpless woman, a heroic handsome savior or suitor, a malevolent father figure, and bits of color from the age before the Protestant Reformation. This novel, known as the first gothic novel, is known by critics to be ridiculous and barely readable. Barbaric, if we can. But Walpole wrote it from a home he designed called Strawberry Hill, one that he decorated to mirror a haunted gothic palace, and the home that held the portrait that inspired the writing of the castle of Otranto, when Walpole dreamed the portrait subject literally stepped out of its frame. As a reminder, this podcast does contain profanity and references to traumatic events such as violence, incest, and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Last time, we talked about Italian humanists terming Gothic as crude, ignorant, vulgar, brutish, and ferine. If you remember, the period of literature I'm about to discuss today was an aftermath of Renaissance ideology, where they were horny for classic style based on Roman and Greek ideas of the past. You also have the Enlightenment during this time, which focused mostly on science and reason, therefore they didn't have any use for the irrational Gothic fiction because it was so unrealistic. So was that wig, bro. Enter also into the scene the clash between Tory and Whig politics. Whiggish politics at the time wanted to offer an alternative to Tory, neoclassicism, and their love of aristocratic values. In a like manner, Whigs begin to really take on this label of Gothic as something inherently English, and begin to Gothicize their estates with faux ruins and medieval architecture. Horace Walpole, the author of today's novel, The Castle of Otranto, was an outspoken Whig, and similarly styled his own home named Strawberry Hill, in a likewise gothic manner, setting the scene for his creation of what is termed the first gothic novel. Walpole strove for an aesthetic of gloom, and it's important to realize that around this time there was a prevalence of anti-aristocratic ideology, the Protestant Reformation, and the rise of the bourgeois values that stated that rather than power being inherited, it should be given to the most able and learned. Therefore, in a lot of gothic works, you have family dramas of legitimacy, inheritance, political intrigue, sudden death, incest, and lust alongside remnants of Catholic ruins. The bourgeois were, in fact, the new rich, and because aristocracy didn't respect new money because it wasn't an inherited title, the new bourgeois made their primary focus making politics and art feel more representational of all the people rather than just the aristocratic ones. On to the castle of Otranto, though. Inspiration came in Walpole's dreams of the subject of one of the portraits he had hanging in Strawberry Hill stepping out of its frame. The book begins with a sonnet, also notably as an abundance of Gothic literature includes sonnets. Tories thought these a low form, so it's kind of another jab at them. In the sonnet it says, The gentle maid whose hapless tale these melancholy pages speak, Say, gracious lady, shall she fail to draw the tear down thy cheek? As usual, our sonnet gives us a bit of interiority of what we're about to read. On page one, we are introduced to Manfred, the Prince of Otranto, his daughter Matilda, who is described as a beautiful virgin, Conrad, his only heir, as homely, that means he ugly, Isabella, the daughter of a Marquise, and Conrad's betrothed, and Hippolyta, who is only described in flat terms as his wife. The book then goes on to exclaim a prophecy. The castle and lordship of Otranto should pass from the present family whenever the real owner should be grown too large to inhabit it. Uh-oh. 
Here, we already see the image of legitimacy in the interloper. We have words like real owner and the castle and lordship of Otranto, which gives us hints that Manfred over here isn't the real owner. So we go right into the day of the wedding between Conrad and Isabella, and when the time comes, old Conrad is nowhere to be found. Did he run off with some other dame? Did he just peace out? Nope. The servant starts screaming, and dear old dad, more annoyed at his son's absence than worried, hurries out to see what his servants are screaming about. What does he find but a giant helmet has fallen on top of his son and killed him on the way to the wedding? The book states, He beheld his child dashed to pieces and almost buried under an enormous helmet. Like, what the fuck? But in response, Manfred is left speechless. This is another common occurrence in the Gothic novel. In her book, The Coherence of Gothic Conventions, Eve Kosofsky-Sedgwick states that the words unutterable and unspeakable are intensifying adjectives in the Gothic. You'll notice that there is always an undercurrent of something that can't be said or is too disturbing to be spoken aloud. This often causes issues. We expect here that Manfred is going to be devastated as his only son's death, but what happens? When the author says, nor could even the bleeding, mangled remains of the young prince divert the eyes of Manfred from the portent before him. Mmm, mangled. What is Manfred focused on? The helmet. His response? Take care of Isabella. What? Rather quickly, we get a shift here to Isabella's point of view. It is stressed that Isabella feels like a daughter to Hippolyta, Manfred's wife, and she loves her. But upon hearing of Conrad's death, she is not sorry to be delivered from the marriage. Why? Because he ugly. I like this bit of interior monologue sandwiched into all this horror. Walpole wants the readers to know that out of all people, Isabella isn't going to be the one devastated by the noose. So after we get that little fun sandwich, we go right back to Manfred, who is still beholding his son crushed under a giant freaking helmet and a crowd of peasants start to form. Some random guy shouts, hey, that helmet looks like the one on a figure of Alfonso the Good that sits at St. Nicholas. I'm paraphrasing here. That's not exactly what the novel says. I'm just, you know, modernizing it a bit. Alfonso was a former prince of Otranto. Then someone else exclaims that that same helmet that the helmet crushing Conrad looks like is, is missing from the church. Manfred, of course, accuses a stranger who made the comparison of being a necromancer. He riles the crowd up, and they decide to take the helmet and place it over the stranger. They assume here that they don't need to give him food because his magic necromancer powers will provide his sustenance. Just an ordinary day at Otranto, I guess. It's important to notice another emergence of a gothic trope here, and that is one of the mysterious stranger, as outlined by Richard Lehan in his book, The City and Literature, an intellectual and cultural history. The stranger, of course, is going to come in and mess up the status quo. Oh, but how when he is trapped under the giant helmet that killed poor, ugly Conrad? At this, the book kind of just turns away from the guy under the helmet and carries on with Manfred. Almost tracking Manfred's devil-may-care attitude about imprisoning Arando under a giant helmet that's still probably covered in his son's blood. We transition to Hippolyta now, who is being attended in her chamber. Her only concern is the care of her husband, so she sends her daughter, Matilda, to check on Manfred, even though he explicitly asks not to be disturbed. Notice here Matilda disobeying a male figure. We'll get to that in episode 3. After Manfred tells Matilda to get the fuck out, she tells her mom that he's handling his grief with, in quotes, 
manly fortitude. I think that's code for girl. He fine. Then all of this is interrupted when a servant comes for Manfred to call Isabella to meet him. It's now night at this point, very important, and when Isabella sees Manfred, she expects he only has fatherly concern over her loss. They meet in a portrait gallery, very important. Portraits are aristocratic proof of family greatness, after all. Manfred goes into this whole soliloquy, basically saying he knew his son was ugly and sick, and he wasn't good enough for Isabella anyway. Manfred calls his only son, now dead, a sick, puny child. That's verbatim, bitches. Isabella thinks maybe Manfred is testing her loyalty, so she's like, nah, I was totally into him. I'm so sad. And he, like, insists again, no, he was terrible. Maybe one day I'll be able to be thankful that he's dead. And Isabella again's like, no, I really liked him. Please believe me. Well, then, of course, what every girl wants to hear from her supposed father-in-law, instead of a sickly boy, you shall have a husband in the prime of his age, old, who will know how to value your beauties and who may expect numerous offspring. Gross. But Isabella is a lady, so she's like, but you're already married. And he's like, nah, girl, I'm divorcing Hippolyta right now. Then he seizes her hand, and you can guess what he's about to attempt, but wait. The feathers of the helmet that he imprisoned that random guy in can be seen in the window, waving backwards and forwards. Of course, Manfred is like, the fuck? And Isabella's like, see, God don't want this to go down. Manfred stops being distracted and was like, heaven nor hell can stop me. If you remember from before, they're in a gallery in the portrait of Manfred's grandfather, which is hanging over the bench where they're sitting, heaves a deep sigh. The fucking portrait sighs right as Manfred is about to rape his daughter-in-law. Then, if that's not enough, while Manfred is distracted, the portrait leaves its panel and descends to the floor of the gallery that motherfucker noped right out of its frame. Of course, Manfred is entranced by this, and the subject of the portrait walks down the hall. Manfred follows and then gets himself locked in another room, giving time for Isabella to run. This is important. At the very sight of attempted rape, a portrait comes out of its frame long enough to distract the rapist. In her book of essays titled Trauma, Explorations and Memory, Kathy Carruth interviews a trauma theorist and psychiatrist named Robert J. Lifton. He states, Extreme trauma creates a second self. In recovery from post-traumatic effects, or from survivor conflicts cannot really occur until that traumatized self is reintegrated. This second self is now called dissociation in today's language. We can almost read this haunting by portrait as a dissociation of Isabella into the image and the frame in which the brain manifests an inner protector to prevent Isabella facing a re-traumatization in which the first trauma is the attempt of her rape. From here, Isabella finds herself in a metaphorical live burial where she traverses subterraneous passages, caverns, labyrinths of darkness, and finds a trap door that will go to an underground tunnel that will lead her to the church where she can find sanctuary. When she gets down there, she finds this trap door, but then she thinks she hears something, and so at first she thinks maybe it's a ghost. But then who does it turn out to be? It's the random guy from earlier who's supposed to be trapped under a helmet. And basically, she's like, how did you get out from under the helmet? And so, long story short, the helmet was so heavy that basically, like, it, I guess it 
put a hole in the floor and he like shimmied out of the hole into the floor down into the passage that she was in and was trying to find a way out. And Isabella's like, hey, I know this trap door is down here and it leads to these tunnels that go to the church. If you could help me, then I could escape and find refuge. And basically the stranger's like, totally. I totally hate Manfred because he's a dick and trapped me under a helmet. So I'm going to help you. I mean, he's more gallant than that, obviously. This is me making it um, 2021 for you guys. But basically says a lot of chivalric things about how he would basically give his life to help a lady in need, chivalry, blah, blah, blah. And so she teaches him how to open it. She knows the, the way to open the spring to the trap door. And basically, right as soon as she gets down there, the stranger's about to follow her. But they hear Manfred and his men coming down. So the stranger drops the trap door and then he comes face to face with Manfred and all of his servants who are equally like, wait, who are you? And then he realizes it's the guy he trapped under the little helmet earlier. And he's like, how did you get out? So apparently necromancers can bring their own food to, to under the helmet. But if he was a necromancer, he couldn't get himself out. I don't know the logic of their imprisonment system or how they think magic works, but whatever. So Manfred comes down. He starts questioning this guy. He's like, what was that noise when I entered? The guy's like, it was a door. And Manfred's like, what door? And the peasant's like, bro, I don't live here. You tell me what door. Then a servant pops in and was like, he was going to use that vault to escape. And Manfred's like, if he was going to escape, how come he's still on this side? I'm going to let him tell it. Okay. Okay. So he goes to the guy and he's like, you should tell me the truth because I'm going to execute you if you are not truthful. And the stranger's like, of course, I'm going to tell you the truth. I would never lie to you. So Manfred's like, okay, well, then I heard the trap door close. How'd you know there was a trap door? And the stranger's like, well, I saw it by the moonlight. And Manfred's like, well, how did you know how to open the trap door? And the stranger's like, well, I guess divine intervention. The same way that I was able to get out from under the helmet. And so then Manfred's like, okay, well, if you knew how to open it, why didn't you use it to escape? And here the stranger, and I like to think he's being a little sassy at this point, was like, how was I supposed to know where it led? I didn't know if those steps led to a deeper dungeon or if they led to outside. So I didn't really want to get into a worse situation than I was already in. And then when the trap door closed, I heard you come down. Then Manfred's like, okay, well then show me how you open the lock. So quick thinking, the stranger like grabs a piece of rock and he's about to beat on the spring so really at this point, he's playing it by ear because obviously he knows if Manfred knows he helped Isabella escape, he's going to execute him. So he grabs this piece of rock. He's like, I'm just going to beat this fucking thing till it opens. But they were interrupted. Thank goodness. Always a great interruption in Gothic novels. But the servants come down named Diego and Jacquez and they're all in a tizzy and they're telling Manfred they need his attention in another part of the castle and that something has happened and he can't really get a straight answer um, from either of them about what's really happened, we get the indication that whatever happened is supernatural. And here, 
our famous stranger decides that he's going to take a chance. And he says, hey, bro, I don't really care about my life. I'm willing to go up there and check for you to see if there's anything happening. And basically Manfred, who's a little impressed by his bravery, is like, you don't need to go for me, but you can come with me. Thank you for listening to episode two of Goth Gal, where we talk about Horace Walpole's The Castle of Otranto. Next time, we'll catch up with our hero and see the consequences of a daring escape plot. We will also discuss topics such as gender politics and the inversion of Hippolyta, from Amazon Queen to Meek Wife of Manfred. I hope you'll join me, and remember, feed the monster under your bed. I bet he's hungry. Thank you.